Welcome back to another edition of the Disney Dish Podcast with Jim Hill. It's me, Len Testa, and this is our show for the week of February 11th, 2019. On today's show, I ride a bus, and then I count people in line, and then I eat some food. Plus, Jim tells us the history of Mickey's Toontown Fair and how it evolved into the new fantasy land we know and love. And speaking of Jim, we're coming up on Valentine's Day. We all know the guy we'd want to be lady in our Lady in the Tramp spaghetti scene. It's Jim Hill. Jim, how's it going? Uh, okay, I, I got the wrong memo. I'm here in the diaper and I got the wings with the little bow and arrow thing. But <laughs> hang on, hang on. Costume change. Costume change. Costume change. <laughs> all right. All right, Jim, before we get started, let's do a shout out to subscribers over at DisneyDish.BandCamp.com. Thanks to new subscribers, Carrie M., Melissa I., and Mike M., and to longtime subscribers, Johnny A., Brian F., and Laura Z. You know, Jim, if we ever needed to go back in time mm-hmm. on a little transdimensional joyride to pick up an iguanodon, I'm just saying, we'd need to assemble a team of intrepid travelers to make sure it got done right. And I'd want Carrie, Melissa, Mike, Johnny, Brian, and Laura in that time rover with us. Also, I think Laura's a huge Felicia Rashad fan. And would really enjoy meeting her. What do you What do you think, Jim? At the very least, we'd have additional bodies to push out of the time rover just in case the <laughs> big thing with the horns came at us. So, you know, yeah, <laughs> yes, yes. Bring people with us, Len. Absolutely. We have two vastly different uh, approaches to uh, subscribers, Jim. You and I. That's all I'm saying. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Jim. Let's uh, Let's do some news. Uh, the Disney Dish News is brought to you by Storybook Destinations, trusted travel partner of the Disney Dish. For a worry-free travel experience every time, book online at storybookdestinations.com. So, uh, Jim, let me start off uh, with some bus timing analysis that we've done. You know that uh, our listeners are interested in some of the data and analytics work that we do behind the scenes. Here's one. So 90% of, of touring plans uh, users and unofficial guide readers stay at a Disney hotel during their vacations. And one of the most common questions that we get from them is how long it'll take to get from their hotel to wherever they're going. For example, people want to know when in the morning they need to leave Pop Century to get to the Magic Kingdom so they can get to their Crystal Palace reservation at 9 a.m., right? We've all been in this situation, right? Mm -hmm. So the way that we used to figure this out was by having our research team sit at various bus stops at the resorts. So like at the Pop Century bus stop, for days on end and write down the time that each bus arrived, the number on the side of the bus, and then where the bus was headed. And with enough of these things written down, we can calculate things like the average time you're going to wait between buses and then the worst case scenario for your wait for uh, between buses. Mm-hmm. And then using Google Maps, we can figure out the average and worst case driving times for any two points within Walt Disney World. That's how we put together the transportation chart in the unofficial guide. Mm-hmm. So now these days, Bus arrival information is in my Disney experience. And you know it's pushed out on sides outside of most resorts, right? I think it's I think it's every resort, right? I believe so. I mean, I've seen the video monitors and yeah. to be honest, they are helpful. They are. So starting last year, we began saving every piece of bus data that we could find in my Disney experience mm-hmm. so we could analyze it later. And now we've got some results for more than uh, 750,000 bus routes mm-hmm. <laughs> that we've studied in uh, in my Disney experience. So the, the interesting thing is this. In years past, when we were doing this all manually, we estimated that the average time between bus arrivals, between any two points, was like 16 or 17 minutes. And the interesting thing is it seems like 17 is the average in our new data too, which is good. So the, mm-hmm. the things that we did before manually seem to match the data that we get from my Disney experience. That's pretty good. 
So if a new bus comes every 17 minutes, your average wait time for the next bus is half of that Mm -hmm. because uh, that's the most common time that you would wait. Most people are not going to walk up just as the bus is leaving. Some people are going to walk up just as the bus arrives. So the average is half of that time. So eight or nine minutes rounded to the nearest whole number. Mm-hmm. Number one, that's that's pretty interesting that uh, the things that we did manually worked out to be the same that we're seeing in my Disney experience. But there's two other interesting things about the data. One is if you look at the mode, the most common wait time mm-hmm. for any bus between any two points, it's about 10 minutes. And for places like the all-star resorts to the Magic Kingdom, the mode is like seven minutes. Mm-hmm. So the most common time that you're going to wait for any two buses going to the Magic Kingdom is seven minutes. That's pretty interesting. Mm-hmm. The other thing is that the 90th percentile of times is 50 minutes, give or take. Um, so that means like 90% of the time, another bus will be no more than 50 minutes later mm-hmm. than the, the last one, no matter the time of the day. And that's actually so consistent mm-hmm. across property between any two points. It's actually between like 50, 47 and 53 minutes mm-hmm. that I was talking this over with, with our statisticians. And I'm like, what are the odds that it's a coincidence? that between every two pair of points in Walt Disney World, the 90th percentile is somewhere between 47 and 53 minutes. Like, what, what are the odds? And what we decided was, it's too similar to be a coincidence. Like, the data is reflecting some sort of internal policy within Disney's transportation group. Like, whoever the vice president of transportation is at Walt Disney World, his bonus must be tied to some sort of service level that says 90% of buses have to arrive within 55 minutes. And this is his way of making sure he gets that bonus every year. It's too exact to be to be coincidental. What do you think? It's hard to argue with those numbers. If I could throw one question out, though, I, I'm just mm-hmm. wondering, what do you have in regard to information in regard to buses traveling from resorts to, say, Disney Springs? Because face it, they did the dedicated bus lanes. They were at least around that right. section of Buena Vista Drive. Has it, have you seen any statistical change there? Or is there anything interesting that bubbled up in the data? So we're looking at bus arrival times first. Mm-hmm. If you take the transportation times, we, we haven't measured them along Disney Springs. Okay. But I think we should. And here's why. Mm-hmm. Google Maps will give you driving uh, times. Mm-hmm. But those driving times aren't the same as the Disney bus times. Because to your point, mm-hmm. the Disney buses follow different lanes with different traffic signals mm-hmm. than cars do. So they will have a different transportation time. We haven't done that yet. Um, it'll be done by the time we, uh, we, we go to print in June. Okay. Because, again, remember... We have this supposedly massive overhaul that's going on with the Disney transportation system. And we've already seen, you know, a number of components, whether it's the flyover at the Magic Kingdom or Mm -hmm. the, in fact, all that work that's still going on between the SBN Wide World of Sports and the new entrance to Disney's uh, Hollywood Studios that supposedly will be definitely impacting how you get around the resort. The studio's flyover is fantastic. Mm Mm-hmm. Have you have you seen the uh, the Magic Kingdom flyover though? God bless them, bless <laughs> yeah, their hearts. I think I managed to use it in November, and yeah, it is remembering what it used to be like. Like okay, okay. you know, it's yeah. it, like you're crossing over into Austria. <laughs> you know, it's, yeah, I, yeah. <laughs> it was. It was. Like, it was like checkpoint Charlie. Going, there we go. So, so they, you know, Disney's invested millions of dollars mm-hmm. in making it easier to get to the Disney resorts and segmenting the traffic on this new flyover. So. People going to the Disney resorts don't have to stop at the Disney toll booths. Mm -hmm. And they put up new signage, and I'm sure they spent a lot of time really studying the traffic flows. But but again, God bless them, Jim. I was driving it a couple days ago, Mm -hmm. and here's what what I noticed. 
if you're going to a Magic Kingdom resort, you bear to the left. And if you're going to the Magic Kingdom parking lot, you bear to the right. Mm -hmm. And all of the signage says that. Mm -hmm. If you're going to the Magic Kingdom resorts, bear to the left. If you're going to the parking lot, bear to the right. Mm -hmm. The one problem that no one thought of is this. You still have to bear to the right to get to the Fort Wilderness campgrounds because that's where the turnoff is for the campgrounds. So if you follow the signs that say Magic Kingdom Resorts, because the campgrounds is a Magic Kingdom Resort, mm -hmm. you will end up in the wrong place and can't get there from, or it's a long way around. You can't get there from there. Mm -hmm. So now they've got a giant blinking sign. <laughs> so they spent tens of millions of dollars, Jim. <laughs> they poured concrete <laughs> in a two-year construction project. Oh. They've got a Bob's Barricade sign okay. out front that says, Fort Wilderness to the right. Okay. Okay. <laughs> We've all done this. We've we've all implemented large multi-year projects, and a bit at the end, like, oh, ah, damn. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Yikes. I'm uh, I'm actually headed out there after uh, after you and I are done talking here, so I'll see if they've uh, if they fix that then. Oh, very cool. The other interesting thing I did, I was at the uh, Animal Kingdom yesterday, counting people. Mm -hmm. So our statistician Fred Hazelton pointed out something last week that was really interesting. Wait times at Kilimanjaro Safaris are up quite a bit, um, about one standard deviation uh, mm -hmm. since the summer of 2016. Obviously, some of that is Pandora, mm -hmm. but from our perspective, the thing that's interesting is that January and February wait times seem to be higher than we expected, even taking into account the fact that last year's capacity uh, at the Animal Kingdom was impacted by some sort of experiment that they did around staffing. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we like to try and figure out what's going on with crowds. And one way to do that is to eliminate things that aren't likely to be causes mm -hmm. of higher wait times. So if I wanted to paraphrase Sherlock Holmes, mm -hmm. if you start limiting things uh, that it can't be, the only <laughs> things left are the ones worth considering. So I headed out to the Animal Kingdom yesterday to sit around and count people coming out of the rides. Mm -hmm. As far as I can tell, they're running safaris and Expedition Everest, the two rides that we were interested in, mm -hmm. at something close to full capacity, which is good. So the number of people that were coming off those rides indicated everything was as full as it could be. So the, uh, the higher wait times that we're seeing, at least for now, don't seem to be due to any sort of staff cutbacks uh, around the rides. So what that means for our models, though, is that it's something else. Mm -hmm. Could be that we've overcompensated in trying to back out last year's capacity thing. Could also be that Disney's new daily pricing structure is actually changing attendance patterns. That's something that we, we won't know for a while yet because we don't have a date on it. Mm -hmm. And it could be that you know people are more evenly distributed throughout the parks now that Pandora is two years old mm -hmm. and some of that novelty has worn off. Uh, we're still working on that, uh, but the good news is, is we know what it's not. By the way, have you ever heard the uh, Thomas Edison uh, quote about uh, the 6,000 times he failed making a light bulb? <laughs> yes. So I someone, so for our listeners, so someone asked Thomas Edison if he ever got frustrated with the uh, 6,000 attempts he made to invent a light bulb mm -hmm. uh, before he actually got one that worked. And he said, no, not at all. He looked at it as discovering six thousand things that weren't light bulbs, instead. Which it's really it's a it's a positive way of looking okay, at things. Okay, I like that. I like that. I do. Uh, so that's uh, that's the attitude that we're uh, we're gonna have here. The mm -hmm. other thing I did um, was I ate at Harambe Market mm -hmm. yesterday. I had the uh, the chicken bowl with cilantro and rice. Mm -hmm. Added a little spicy barbecue sauce on the side. It was uh, really good. I mean, even for eleven forty nine, mm -hmm. it was better than I expected, and it was also a lot of food. Mm -hmm. I still think it's a humanitarian crime to charge four dollars for a coke. Mm -hmm. But that's a separate, uh, mm -hmm. separate subject. Anyway, I decided to eat at twelve thirty, which is literally the busiest time of the day at Walt Disney World restaurants. Mm -hmm. And the line at Harambe Market was all the way back to actually Lagos itself in Nigeria. Um, but there was no, <laughs> yeah, it's true. I counted. Okay. But there was no line for mobile ordering pickup, mm -hmm. so I did that. I was again literally the only person in line for mobile food ordering. It saved like fifteen minutes. Mm -hmm. So, listeners, 
Make sure you know how to use mobile ordering for your next trip to Walt Disney World before you go. That is our top tip for the day. Got it. Also, Jim, uh, I almost forgot about this. Mm-hmm. You had mentioned something uh, uh, since I was in Animal Kingdom yesterday. I did stop by uh, and looked at how Banshees were selling over in Pandora. Mm-hmm. And you've actually got a, a something to add to that, right? Well, yeah. I mean, face it, this has turned out to be a, a hugely lucrative aspect of Pandora, the world of Avatar. And so it's not really a surprise looking forward to Star Wars Galaxy's Edge that when you get down into the bazaar at Black Spire Outpost, you will also have the opportunity to buy a pet. Disney's going to be sort of walking this concept out in the next couple of months. But yeah, you can take a pet home. That said, though, they're getting genuinely crazy about the whole notion of the planet of Batu is totally separate from Disney's Hollywood Studios and Disneyland Park. I mean, evidently, the cast members, they're already starting to do some prep. And it just, remember how you were talking about how the people who used to work in the rookery at Avatar, yep. they would speak Navi, they would talk about the documentary that James Cameron made. It's just sort of like the cast members that work in Black Spire Outpost are going to have equal sort of, or at least the opening team, mind you, We'll have that drilled into them as well. It's like, you are not at a Disney theme park. You are on the planet of Batu. You are now in the bazaar at Black Spire Outpost. And how many credits are you willing to pay for this? And while we're getting into uh, uh, touching on news that relates to Disney Hollywood Studios, this past year, the flurry of fun thing that they did at the park. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, very popular. They're looking to continue to expand this program. Uh, for 2019, the Lightning McQueen Racing Academy attraction. I mean, I. I over, this is going over by uh, Rock and Roller Coaster, right? They're doing some work around the queues just to sort of make that pathway a little bit more uh, navigable. Yeah, this is that black box theater that they built that they had that, that Disney villains encounter in a year or so back. Oof. Okay, now the new show that's going in there, which opens December 31st. Uh, mm-hmm. Sort of keys around, there's going to be a full-size animatronic of Lightning McQueen basically on stage in the center of the theater, and he's going to be surrounded by this 200-foot-long, two-story tall screen, which the yep. other characters from Radiator Springs and the Cars movies can sort of chime in, sort of yep. be phoning in, that sort of thing. But the physical setup of this thing lends itself beautifully to doing a seasonal show. And if you know what they do out in California, they actually do two separate programs for Cars Land at Disney's California Adventure. They they do a haul o ween as in you haul the car away, hmm. and they also do a season speedings. <laughs> really? Yeah. So the plan for Florida is that for the 2019 holiday season, there's going to be a special holiday edition of the Lightning McQueen Racing Academy, where basically you go in and you get to sing Christmas carols with the characters and they've already ordered the giant Santa hat that Lightning will be wearing when he he does this version of the show. Wow. Yeah, I mean, you probably have to get that get started making that now given the amount of felt that it's going to take. <laughs> Very true. And while we're talking about Pixar characters at, at Disney Hollywood Studios, I don't know if you saw this Super Bowl sneak preview of Toy Story 4, which gave us our first peek at Bo Peep and her new action outfit with her her cape and all that the walk around version of that character is already slated to start popping up in toy story land at disney hollywood studios in late may early june of this year when does the movie come out 
movie comes out i want to say june 21st of this year Len. okay so they're gonna they're gonna preview it out okay if you remember how merida came into the park weeks before brave opened that sort of thing this is kind of standard operating procedure what's interesting though is well look you and i both know how tight and how crowded right now toy story land is right yeah and so they're they're walking around looking to figure out where exactly are we carving out the space for the Bo Peep meet and greet? I mean, it's going to have to be at the far end over by Alien Swirling Saucers. Well, that is the thinking. But, you know, as of right now, marking the area out and just trying to figure out, you know, from a guest flow point of view, how is this going to work? And, and face it, we're not too far off from when Galaxy's Edge opens and we're going to see... The second portal to the land, the one with the giant buzz figure standing by the Toy Story marquee. Mm -hmm. So they are looking down in that space, trying to find someplace logical to put her. Okay, so the where the giant buzz is right now, that's, right. they're not going to put up anything else because that would uh, distract from Galaxy's Edge. Yeah, but my understanding is that once they open uh, Galaxy's Edge, the the buzz figure, in much the same way that Woody is the the giant twenty, nearly twenty foot tall Woody, is standing near the marquee that you come into the land at now. Right. They're going to do the same thing with Buzz. They're moving. Oh, okay. Buzz. Or so the bookends. Oh, that makes way more sense. Yeah, that's it exactly. Okay, okay. Uh, uh, you know, maybe maybe the people who uh, actually planned the ingress and egress of Toy Story Land should have done the thing with the Magic Kingdom flyover because I think they were thinking ahead and mm -hmm. uh, a little bit more. Jim, is uh, is Bo Peep going to be a face character or is she going to be uh, uh, in costume? Fully in costume. They've tested both versions and the belief is that when they tried the face character version, the problem is that they then paired her with Woody and it's like, oh, that's not going to work. Oh, right. Yeah. I mean, different scales, different. Yeah. Okay. okay. Yeah. How All can right. we talk with Bo, but we can't talk with Woody. So right. it's. Oh, it, good point. Yeah. You know, so they're retreating to, to one that has the same shape language and that sort of thing as Woody, Buzz and Bullseye. And I'm blanking her name. Jesse. While we're talking about uh, changes at the studio, mm -hmm. just something to mark on your calendar to 2021 now. Just as that year's flurry of fun is winding down, another thing that will be winding down is the Indiana Jones Epic Stunt Spectacular. It's a, that's Right now, that attraction is slated to go down for a six-month-long rehab. What? Jim, I, I will believe this when I see it. Okay, well, well here's the thing. The reason that th this is... It's supposedly in the works. We have Indiana Jones 5 slated to open July 9th, 2021. And okay. the belief is that that film is going to sort of turbocharge interest in the Indiana Jones franchise. And it's not so much what they're going to do the show. I mean, my understanding is that just the technology like flat panel that has changed since the show opened in 89. You know, there's a lot sure. of stuff that can be done to to make the show, the presentation that much better. Also, 2021 is, if you can believe it, the 40th anniversary of the, uh, the release of the original uh, Indiana Jones films, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Still holds up, Jim. Still a great it, film. No, it's still a great film. But they're talking about, okay, so we're going to use that to create a celebration of the franchise. For the first time ever, there's going to be a dedicated meet and greet for Indy, area outside but directly adjacent to the stunt show where you can go and, and meet Indy. And likewise, in the grand Disney tradition, there is finally going to be a really for real dedicated store 
Because <laughs> face it, the the adventure outpost where the Indiana it's, Jones. It's an it's an outpost, Jim. True, truer words have never been written by Disney marketing. It is in the not in the middle of nowhere. It is the backside of nowhere. There we go. And supposedly that's where you're going to go to meet Indy, and they're going to oh, carve okay. out the shop space. They're going to re- redo the exiting of the attraction and basically yeah, send yeah, you yeah. through a bizarre space that will be loaded chock full of 40th anniversary Indie uh, merch. If they, if they make it look like a, a, an actual Moroccan marketplace or a, a, an Egyptian marketplace, mm-hmm. I think that would work out really, really well. I think they have actually got the space there too because doesn't the exit for Indy butt up against what is going to be soon the new tram turnaround spot? There, there you go. Yeah. They've got props back there from Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, which again, that, mm-hmm. that's 89 that have been just sitting there rusting and it's like we could make so much better use of this space and if yeah. we brought the crowds out through here they then logically go oh that's where i meet indy yeah totally makes sense get ready for that but just one caution it was this time last year that we saw lucasfilm push off indiana jones from its july 2020 release to 2021 so again all of this keys off of that film actually going forward on time and We'll see. Well, but still, I mean, number one, Harrison Ford's not getting any younger. Uh, but number two, wouldn't they have to start pre-production and principal photography pretty soon in order to hit that uh, you, you uh, release date, which is now like two years and a couple months away? You are preaching to the choir here. But but right. again, this is also Lucasfilm that had tapped the brakes very hard on the heels of what happened with Solo, a Star Wars story last year. So I understand the decision based on the box office. I actually enjoyed Solo as a movie. Mm-hmm. All of the recent uh, Star Wars movies have been pretty decent. Mm-hmm. Parts of Rogue One, I thought, were a little implausible, but uh, but overall, I liked I liked Solo as a movie. Mm-hmm. I, uh, I didn't have any didn't have any problems with it. I didn't understand the uh, the critical panning of it. Maybe maybe it was just you know one a movie every every year is a lot, but we'll see. I mean, the episode nine is coming out what December of this year? December of this year. I've been wrong twice in this, so that I was just told by somebody at Disney that. The uh, episode nine trailer will be debuting in April in Chicago at the Star Wars Celebration. So okay. let's all get ready for me to be wrong a third time. Okay. <laughs> all right, Jim. Let's uh, let's do this. Let's take a quick commercial break. Mm-hmm. When we uh, come back, we will talk about the anniversary of the closing of Mickey's Toontown Fair that happened this week, mm-hmm. eight years ago, uh, and also uh, how New Fantasyland came about. How does that sound, Jim? That works for me. All right, folks. We'll be right back. And we're back. All right, Jim, this week marks the eighth anniversary mm-hmm. of Mickey's Toontown Fair closing in the Magic Kingdom. Now, we've talked previously about why Disney created Mickey's Birthday Land, which became Mickey's Toontown Fair. Mm-hmm. We've talked about that before. Yep. But we haven't really spent a whole lot of time talking about why Disney wanted to make a new fantasy land, what motivated them, and how they decided to make it as big as it is, right? Because Mickey's Toontown Fair is a tiny portion Mm-hmm. of what is now New Fantasyland. Uh, to be specific, it's the uh, Storybook Circus section. Yep. So what made Disney 10 years ago decide to go from, we're going to change this this Mickey's Toontown Fairland and make it a permanent part of Fantasyland to something much, much bigger, the largest ex- expansion project in the history of the Magic Kingdom? What Can you walk us through that? To be honest, we, we even have to jump back 10 years prior to that. Given the the way you operate, Len, where, where you sit and observe and draw conclusions, it's, there's the famous story about Andrew Mooney, the then head of Disney Consumer Products, and he went to a Disney on Ice show, and he's 
literally standing outside of the actual arena. And he's mm-hmm. looking at all these little girls who were arriving at the ice show dressed as Disney princesses. And it's like, what is this? And he goes back to Disney Coats Over Products and it's like, do we actually market that? And it's like, oh, no, no, no. You know, they, all of the princesses are separate things. And we, for, you know, Snow White is our online emergence. Cinderella is our online emergence. And Andrews looks like, well, what if we were to take them and make them. A what if it was not that way? Yeah. <laughs> and seriously, so from, from this is January of 2000, uh, you know, by the end of 2001, they have realigned the unit. They've launched the Disney brand. And in that period of time, Len, the brand is making $300 million a year. By the end of 2012, it's grown into a $3 billion merch line. I'm no mathematician, but that's like 10 times as much, right? There you go. There you okay. go. Right. And of course, Mooney is like, well, what else could we do? And so he pulls sales stats from the theme parks, and it turns out that the Tinkerbell sales at the Disney theme parks were ridiculously high, more to the point they were ridiculously consistent. Tinkerbell. Tinkerbell, if you can See, This is the thing I never understood. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, it's a, it's a minor character in a, what, 60, 70-year-old mm-hmm. film. What's the appeal there? It, it's lost on me, but may, I'm, I'm clearly not the demographic here. I've actually talked with somebody with consumer products about it. He says, you don't get it. You have everybody standing in front of the castle at 9 o'clock at night, and the fireworks happen, and who jumps off of the castle? Tinkerbell. And then they turn around and they're walking out of the park and they're going through the Emporium. And what's the last character that they saw? All right. And so they buy all this Tink merch. The joke was, who should we have pushed off the castle? (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Who gets pushed off the ledge next? (laughs) Yeah. So anyway, 2005, they launched the Disney's Fairies line with the the launch of uh, Gail Carson Levine's Fairy Dust in the Quest for the Egg Book. By 2006, because there's a line of dolls supporting that. By 2007, Disney Fairies all by themselves, it's generating $800 million in global retail sales. I can't believe that. Didn't they try like a line of dolls too? They did. Like to to look like the Bratz dolls? Something like that? I I seem to remember that. Yeah, I mean, you go to the Disney store and every so often you'll see these things like, literally right now they have what they call the big feet plush, where it's your classic Disney characters, only they have giant feet. Anyway, back to uh, Disney Fairies. So they figured that the way to fuel the growth of the Disney Fairy franchise is they launch a series of Disney Fairy films. First of those, Tinkerbell, comes out in September of 2008. And we pivot the parks and resorts, which is watching all of this money pour in to the Disney Princess and the Disney franchise, again, a, a Fairies franchise. And it's like, it's time for those franchises to have stronger representation at Walt Disney World. Not on their artistic merits, but on the financial benefit. Absolutely. Okay, Absolutely. fair enough. Okay, so the Fantasyland Forest Project is set in motion of fall of 2008. And What's it called? Fantasyland Forest. Fantasyland Forest. Okay, this is the first version of New Fantasyland? Yeah, and in fact, what's kind <laughs> of intriguing is you can still see the bones of it. You know how when you're walking... From the Prince Charming Regal Carousel toward Bell's Village, toward the Gaston's Tavern and that sort of thing. And you pass through that weird sort of fragment wall thing that's just out in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, it's uh, it's like a rampart that uh, that's not connected to anything else. They're called the Fantasy Land Gates. And the idea yep. is that once you pass through that, you've just entered the woods that Snow White and Briar Rose ran into to hide from the Wicked Queen and Maleficent. Ah, okay, okay. All right, but again, that allowed them, as you mentioned, the largest expansion in, in Magic Kingdom history, bumping out 
fantasy land from 11 acres to 21 acres. But you have to understand land. Okay, this is fall of 2008. Princess of the Frog doesn't get released till December 2009. Tangled is until November of 2010. And the biggest Disney princess movie of all time, Frozen, which would go on to sell $1.2 billion worth of tickets worldwide during its initial theatrical release, is until November of 2013. So it's important to understand None of that was taken into consideration when they were initially designing this land. This is all on the back of Disney princesses and Disney fairies. Now to get to Mickey's Toontown Fair, because right. at this point, again, we're at the fall of 2008, there's only been two Disney fairies movies. There was the Tinkerbell movie that came out in September of 2008, right. and there's a sequel, Tinkerbell and the Lost Treasure, which comes out October 2009. So the notion is, okay, we have four or five movies that are going to follow this on an annual basis. Let's push off the Disney fairies section of the Fantasyland Forest till phase two. So September 2009 at the D23 Expo at part of the parks and resort presentation, the then head of Disney Parks and Resort, Jay Rizzullo, stands on stage and announces, you know, what they're going to do. And we and in passing, he talks about the, the Pixie Hollow section where it's going to have a full-size recreation of the pixie dust tree and a meet-and-greet area for the fairies. This was over where, where we know Seven Dwarfs Mine Train to be now, right? No. Where Pixie Hollow was supposed to be built is where the Double Dumbo is now. Oh, it was back there. Okay, I couldn't tell from the concept art. If you type in New Fantasyland Leaked Plans, the original blueprint for the land comes up. And what's interesting is the Double Dumbo sits on top of where Pete's Silly Sideshow, that retail meet-and-greet area is. Oh, right. I'm looking at it now. Yeah, yeah. All right. November of 2009, two months after they've announced the new Fantasyland project, Bob Iger is trying to decide who his number two is going to be. And he's looking at Tom Staggs, who's this, the, the, then the CFO of the Walt Disney Company, and he's looking at Jay mm -hmm. Rizzullo. Uh, you know, who's the, you know, head of parks and resorts, as we just talked about. And it's like, both of these men could do this job, but they need more experience in different arms of the company. And mm -hmm. Bob announces that these two guys are going to swap jobs. I remember this. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so Rosilla's announced it. And so the project is moving forward. So as early as April of 2010, we see construction begin. Uh, the Ariel's Grotto that was, used to be over by the Pinocchio Village House closes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was prime. It was a prime location for not a very good, not a very good opportunity. I mean, it's a relatively small thing mm -hmm. sitting in some very, very valuable real estate. No, that's it exactly. And then right across from the main adventures of Winnie the Pooh, we had that Pooh's playful spot. Right, the hundred acre. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which they gone. They then spend big bucks to move that tree. All right. Anyway, again, it's 2010. And Staggs is doing his worldwide Disney Parks and Resort familiarization tour. He visits every theme park. He meets with, you know, rides every ride, sees every show. And while he's at Walt Disney World, he sits down with the retail staff. And they're like, okay, we need to talk with you about this new Fantasyland project. Because we're about to lose a store that is second only to the Emporium in per square feet sales. And that's County Bounty. And it's like, is there right. anything you can do about this? This doesn't appear in the 2009 rendering. I'm Not looking at, at it all. right now. Not at okay. all. Okay. All right. 
And so Staggs looks at the numbers and again, CFO as opposed to creative. He looks at the artistic merits uh, and the continuity of uh, of the current plans in Fantasyland. Go ahead, Jim. Yes. And it's just sort of like, <laughs> how much money? You know, and so it, he announces, you know, he goes back to Imagineering and says, okay, here's the deal. County Bounty has to stay where it is. But I get that from all of the historic data that you've got, for Dumbo, we need two Dumbos. How about this? Why don't you move Dumbo over to where Pixie Hollow is? As a father of three boys, I am very concerned about the current lineup that you have Bell's Enchanted Cottage, and you also have these elaborate meet and greets for Cinderella and Briar Rose. And it's like, I worry that we're building, we're spending all this money on a part of the park that only will appeal to little girls. Yeah, so we we know from we know from research that boys and girls uh, up to a certain age mm-hmm. equally enjoy meeting the Disney characters. Mm-hmm. I think it actually extends into teens mm-hmm. that they do. But you're right; it's a huge gamble mm-hmm. on on personalities and character greetings over rides, mm-hmm. over family friendly thrill rides. This was 2009, right? Okay. Right. Go yep. ahead. Now we jump ahead to January of 2011, and it's official that that suddenly. There are revised plans out there for New Fantasyland. Your Pixie Hollow is gone. Likewise, this meet and greet and uh, that was supposed to buttress Enchanted Tales with Belle. But mm-hmm. you have to understand that they have already broken ground. They're working off of the old blueprints. Right. I mean, this is two years after it's been announced. They've, yeah. yeah. And yeah. February 11, 2011, Mickey's Toontown Fair closes. And then it's one year basically to the day that Storybook Circus opens in New Fantasyland. And we have our new Dumbo. All of this stuff, like a house remodel gone wrong, the whole notion of you've got to build this brand new coaster in the middle of an area that had previously been set aside for a meet and greet. And so we get Bell's Village and Beast's Castle and the Be Our Guest Restaurant and the Little Mermaid Ride opening around the outermost portions of New Fantasyland in December of 2012. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and then in the middle of it, <laughs> yeah. in the middle of the most popular land in the mm-hmm. busiest theme park in the United States, mm-hmm. <laughs> we're going to build a roller coaster. <laughs> but at the same time, you've got stags looking over shoulder and you've got, you know, the first of the new princess movies that are making money. And it's just sort yeah. of like, crap, we have to make place for these things. And so that's how we end up in March of 2013 with the Rapunzel Tower and the Tangled Toilets over by Small World. And yeah. May of 2014, finally, the new, new, newly revised version of New Fantasyland uh, is completed with the opening of Seven Dwarfs Mine Train. And Jay Rizzullo, you know, after switching jobs and dutifully learning how to be a CFO and that sort of thing, finds out he's being passed over. So he announces in June of 2015, he's leaving the Walt Disney Company. During these this exact same period of time, the seventh and final Tinkerbell movie, The Legend of the Never Beast, is becomes available to purchase. And you know, it just it, it's fascinating. The Disney Princess franchise is still going strong. For some reason, again, and remember, Len, at one point, all by itself, Disney Ferries was making eight hundred million dollars in global retail sales, and mm-hmm. the company literally turned its back on the revenue stream supposedly that's on the back of Frozen. Oh, okay. They, they give up the $800 million in exchange for $1.2 billion or Yeah, whatever. and then we jump ahead to April of 2016. Tom Staggs was one of these situations where the board of directors told Iger that they, they weren't confident in 
you know, his transition plan and that, that Stag, they were concerned about Stags being in charge of the newly global Walt Disney Company. And so Jeez. Stags leaves the company. June of 2016, we get Frozen Ever After opens in Epcot and there's still people who are angry about it being shoehorned into Norway over there. That was what I was going to point out, that Princess Fairytale Hall was part of the the new Fantasyland expansion. And when it opened with, with the Frozen characters, there yep. were five-hour waits for that. Yep. And again, from a continuity perspective, mm-hmm. from an artistic interpretation perspective, what Disney decided was they'd make more money if they were in Epcot. Yep. So that's why they eventually moved, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And, yeah. If, and if you think about what they did to eliminate that five-hour long line at the summer house, you get into that space and sort of borrowing a page from what they used to do with uh, the Mickey theater experience back at Mickey's birthday land, that there's a couple of different doors and maybe there's a couple of different sets of Anna and Elsa's. A couple of little things before we wrap up here. Ironically enough, Disney Toon Studios, which had made all of that money for the company with those Disney Ferris films, it shutters back in June of 2018. And in fact, the eighth Disney Ferris film, which had been storyboarded, written, I think there actually was some recording work done on it, was canceled, shut down, though. Oddly enough, there is a Tinkerbell movie, live action, that Reese Witherspoon has been attached to at the studios for a while, and huh. wonder if that's going to go forward. And Tom Staggs, uh, did you see the news back in December where after sort of stepping away from the entertainment industry for a while, he's now... One of the candidates to replace Les Moonves over at CBS. CBS, I saw that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, he's got experience in the industry. Yeah, I mean, you know, he he would be a really smart choice, and more to the point, given his history at Disney and given what Les was accused of, you know, bringing a squeaky hmm. clean candidate like that would make sense. But, but anyway, that sort of brings us to where we are today with the new Fantasyland project and the whole notion again of. You started, you know, with one design scheme for this whole thing, keying off of the Disney princesses and Disney franchises. And then we have this next generation of Disney princess films. And suddenly the the company changes direction. But yeah, over the span of uh, two and a half years, the amount of changes that went in were, were pretty incredible. When you tie yourself to something like this, you know, we often end up with the situation we just had in Epcot, where we literally had a sponsor in place for his Spain pavilion. We literally had mm-hmm. a ride and an attraction ready to go. And But the film they tied it to, Gigantic, got shut down just last year. And company took, Len, a $90 million write-off on that movie. But, you know, with a score by the people who were frozen, with a, mm-hmm. a director. Oh, yeah, yeah. I tank. remember, yeah. It, yeah. $90 million. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it shows you how, how fast things can change. Yeah. In the uh, in the the world of uh, of theme parks, but it, you know it keeps it interesting for us, yeah, that and, does. and for our listeners. All right, uh, thanks very much for that, Jim. That was uh, that was super interesting. I didn't uh, I had forgotten about that intermediate new Fantasyland plan. I'll try and post in the show notes um, the uh, the links to the uh, the blueprints. Very cool. All right, folks, that's going to do it for our show today. We're produced fabulously by Aaron Adams, like Neil Patrick Harris. Everybody loves Aaron, and neither of them will be hosting the Oscars this year. Don't forget to go into iTunes and rate our show and tell us what you'd like to hear next. For Jim, this is Len. We will see you on our next show.